Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. Hello, everyone. I'm here with my dear old friend, Richard Davidson. We all call him Richie. Uh, We've known each other since graduate school. Uh, Richie now is a professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, founder and chair of the Center for Healthy Minds and of a related nonprofit uh, called Healthy Minds Innovations. I've known Richie and followed his research career for decades Uh, He's tracked the study of emotions. He was one of the founders of the field of affective neuroscience. And his work has gone from what upsets us to the positive range, to compassion, to well-being. And it's that range I'd like to explore today with Richie, uh, who not only founded affective neuroscience, he's one of the first to study compassion uh, from a neuroscience point of view. So Richie... um, I'm doing this in the context of emotional balance, which is a, one of the competencies or capabilities of emotional intelligence. And it means keeping disruptive emotions and impulses in check to some extent so that they don't interfere with what we're doing and we can maintain our effectiveness under stress or even hostile conditions. Uh, you know, it's staying calm and clear. So. I'd like to start at, at the bottom of the spectrum, which is the state of frazzle. When people are, you know, I just gave a talk to people in Ukraine, and I can't even imagine the stress that they're under and threats there are real. You could die any minute from a cruise missile, uh, you know, exploding where you are. And I can only imagine uh, that people there must be living in a state of what neuropsychiatry has called frazzle. And could you tell us what's going on in the brain when we're absolutely at our worst from that point of view? Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me, Dan. It's always good to be with you. I uh, share your uh, just um, uh, uh, th- this sense of of. The, the unimaginable with people in Ukraine uh, and the depth of um, of, of being frazzled. I'm, frazzle may not be a sufficiently strong adjective to describe uh, the challenges that they face. Um, but what I would say from a, a neuroscientific perspective is um, a few things. First is that the um, the amplitude, if you will, of the systems involved in responding to threat are extremely high. 
Uh, just uh, for us uh, lay citizens, high amplitude means what? The volume is turned all the way up. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, so, so that's one element, but it's not the only element. Uh, uh, a second element is that the systems that are normally in place to turn the volume down once it's turned up are impaired. Uh, and so uh, uh, from a neuroscientific perspective, we would say that there is some impairment in the capacity to regulate the emotion once it is activated. Uh, and so you have kind of the double whammy of having high volume and being unable to turn the volume down. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, and so and we know that one of the key brain regions for regulating emotion is the prefrontal cortex. And we know that stress impairs the functioning of the prefrontal cortex. And so it impairs that capacity to turn down the volume. Well, um, Richie, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, while we're impaired, what does this do to our general mental capacity, our ability to think clearly, our ability to make decisions, solve problems? Um, so it will, yeah, it will impact all of those things because um, our uh, um, resources are dedicated, if you will, to this stress, um, to the challenge, uh, and the um, difficulty that we have in turning down the volume uh, is actually um, hogging a lot of resources. Uh, and um, there is going to be diminished capacity to process anything else. Uh, and so this will impact our decision-making. It will impact our capacity to actually um, detect what's going on in the environment. Um, one of the things that we often say is that fear and threat quite literally narrows the aperture of awareness so that you are less attentive to the things that are in your immediate uh, environment. Uh, uh, and in some sense, it's adaptive because all your energy is focused on the threat. But um, in certain cases, uh, there is little, and in, in some cases, nothing that we can do about the threat. It's outside of our control. Um, uh, and so the only thing that we have the possibility of controlling is our own mind. And if we can't turn down the volume, um, that is going to be um, a real challenge. So you're saying that uh, the brain is designed, as it were, for us to pay attention, to fixate on what we perceive as the threat, whether or not the threat is real. Uh, we keep thinking about it. Our, our mind goes there. Is that right? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, and of course, you know, in, in the Ukraine, there are real physical threats. In, um, in other places uh, that are safe, the, most of the threats in modern society 
um, come from our own mind. Um, we create these threats. So uh, th this is the thing that's always fascinated me is that the biological system that reacts to threat was designed for real physical threat. Like in the Ukraine, you could be bombed. But it, it elicits the same biological response. We get flooded with stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, uh, even if it's an imagined threat. And, and today we live in such a complex social reality. I think outside of a war zone, most of the threats we act to might be imaginary. Yeah. And, you know, one of the analogies that um, is often used uh, is with dreaming, there is research that shows that if we have emotions in our dreams, um, uh, let's say something fearful, uh, there are real changes in the body. Uh, we can see changes in our autonomic nervous system, our heart rate may increase, our respiration um, gets faster. Uh, stress hormones, as you were suggesting earlier, can get released. And yet, you know, in a dream, we know that it's all in our mind, so to speak. Um, and the amazing thing that modern neuroscience teaches us is that what we think of as reality is also all in our mind. It's just like a dream because we are creating this reality in our mind all the time uh, based on our own interpretation of the world. Uh, and so it's the, 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 the difference between waking and dreaming is actually not very great. So t tell me about the biological changes that occur when we uh, have an imagined threat, like she didn't invite me to the party and that means she doesn't like me. Our friendship is ended and I, that might, I'm going to lose that whole circle of friends, you know? So maybe the invitation comes a day later, your mind doesn't treat it that way. It treats the imagined uh, social exclusion as a real deal. And then what, what happens in the body when that goes on? What happens when we're under stress, essentially? Yeah, so when we have that kind of imagined situation, uh, as you were suggesting earlier, the same biology that evolution provided us with to deal with physical threats is activated um, by our imagined threats. And so this is really one of the biggest problems in um in modern society. And, you know, humans have this amazing capacity to anticipate the future and to reflect on the past. And this confers enormous opportunity and advantage for us. Um, uh, but it also is the source of a huge amount of suffering because uh, we can anticipate potential threats that we basically create in our mind and we respond to them as if they're real. So whether it's a real threat or imagine what's going on in the body and the cardiovascular system, the immune system, can you just run through that checklist for us? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. So we see in the body an activation of the, in, uh, uh, of branches of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is the system that controls our visceral organs, like our heart, uh, our um, lung, uh, our um, uh, uh, 
uh, the sweating on our skin, uh, our breathing. Uh, and um, there are two major branches to the autonomic nervous system. There's the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch. And the sympathetic branch has been called the flight or fight response. It is what is activated in under stress. And what happens is that our heart rate elevates. Uh, we secrete certain molecules that um, uh, stimulate uh, our heart rate, that increase our respiration, um, that increase the blood flow to our peripheral muscles in case we need to act and run. Um, uh, there are also changes in our um, inflammatory response. There's an increase um, uh, that we see in, um, uh, in inflammation. Uh, we also see an increase in uh, stress hormones like cortisol, uh, which serve an important role in uh, generally activating many different systems in the body. Um, uh, and, uh, um, uh, uh, and so all of this is occurring. They're occurring on different time scales, but they all can have fairly um, quick responses. The changes that we see in the autonomic nervous system can be very quick. Uh, the changes that we see in these molecules may take a few minutes to unfold, but within five or 10 minutes, you can see these changes. Um, uh, and so the, all of this is happening uh, and can be happening as we were discussing to a completely imagined threat. Um, uh, uh, and in fact, there are things that we do in the laboratory uh, that involve a quote, social stress that is um, a completely made up scenario. Uh, and, and everyone knows, I mean, participants are told the truth that it's not real. Um, you know, uh, the way it's done is people are asked to give a little talk as if it were a job interview uh, and to talk about characteristics of themselves that are important for this hypothetical job. It's all completely fiction. Uh, and yet 90% of people show an elevation of cortisol in response to this. Uh, and there, there's full disclosure to people that this is completely fictitious. It's not a real job interview. Um, and yet uh, uh, this is what happens because this kind of machinery is so hardwired uh, in our brain uh, because of the potential really deleterious and in certain cases lethal consequences of real physical threat. Well, I'm thinking now of someone who's under constant stress you know, not in the Ukraine, where there are real threats to life and death, but rather uh, someone who works for a terrible boss or who has someone in their family who is really abrasive and rude and difficult to get along with, or a nurse who works on a COVID unit and is in constant fear, even while treating patients, of uh, herself or himself bringing that home to their family. And, you know, what's going on when a person can't really recover 
when they're in constant sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight arousal, uh, day after day after day. Yeah, so the cumulative impact um, is very significant um, and um, quite deleterious. So one of, I mean, there are many different uh, consequences, but one, for example, is that when cortisol is expressed chronically over time at high levels, uh, it actually has deleterious effects on the brain. Uh, and so cortisol is a molecule that crosses the blood-brain barrier. It gets into the brain when it's released um, by the adrenal glands, which sit over the kidney on each side. Uh, and then it courses through the bloodstream. Uh, and uh, it has effects on our muscles, on our autonomic nervous system. It also has effects on the brain. And um, when in the immediate effects on the brain could be uh, if there were a real physical threat, it could be positive because it can arouse certain systems in the brain, make you more attentive to the threat uh, and help you deal with it. But if it's day in and day out in this chronic way, uh, it's, it can be actually toxic because it leads to um, excito, what we call excitotoxicity. And what excitotoxicity is, is stimulation of neurons in the brain, brain cells that are stimulated constantly. Uh, and when they're stimulated constantly, it actually leads to a toxic response where the cells eventually die because um, they have been stimulated excessively. Uh, and so this is a really profoundly important issue because uh, it is one of the sources of early neurodegeneration uh, among people who have been chronically stressed. We know, for example, that caregivers of patients, um, medical patients, who, uh, um, and often this has been studied in actually patients with dementia, because a caregiver who is caring for a patient with dementia, a family member, it's a very challenging kind of caregiving. Um, and it's very stressful. And research has found that um, the uh, cortisol levels um, uh, are initially very high and they give rise to changes in the brain that actually lead to volume shrinkage in certain critical areas of the brain where there are receptors for the, for cortisol. So what is it doing to other parts of the body? I know there's a high relation, a positive relationship between stress and heart disease, for example, uh, between stress and inflammatory disorders generally uh, is something akin to what you described going on in the brain happening in other parts of the body and other systems. Yes, and um, it is. And one of the things that happens is that the receptors uh, for cortisol, so they, these molecules have receptors, which it's, you can think of it as a lock and a key. The key is the cortisol, and the um, lock into which the key is inserted is a receptor. And that's how they actually communicate and do the work that they do. Um, and the receptor becomes um, uh, sensitized 
uh, when it is chronically exposed to cortisol. And so it basically stops working after a while. Um, it becomes, uh, um, uh, and you can think of it uh, in a way that is similar to other kinds of habituation, where if you have the same thing happening over and over again, you'll be less responsive to it. Um, and so uh, you're less responsive to it. And that really messes up all the feedback loops that are so important in the regulation of cortisol. So cortisol regulation becomes dysfunctional. So how would that, for example, create high blood pressure or asthma or any of those kinds? How would it feed into that process? Yeah, I mean, those are really um, complicated questions that don't have simple answers. Um, uh, you know, we know that it, it's not just cortisol in those cases, it's many other factors. Um, but uh, in, in any situation where, and many chronic illnesses, in fact, most chronic diseases, physical diseases involve an inflammatory component where there is uh, excess inflammation. And um, in part, this is a consequence of a failure to regulate. Um, inflammation in an acute challenge may actually be very adaptive to have an inflammatory response. But if it's persisting over time, it can actually lead to all kinds of disorders and complications. Um, and, uh, 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 and with asthma and uh, certain kinds of cardiovascular disease, it's really um, the, uh, uh, in many ways, a failure of the feedback mechanisms that regulate the inflammation that have gone awry. Uh, and, and it's due to um, uh, either, uh, in, in, uh, all of these conditions have some genetic contribution, but they're also major environmental factors. And the environmental factors have to do with chronic stress. One of them that's actually being studied more and more now is poverty. Um, you know, poverty gets under the skin and actually affects this whole stress neurobiology system uh, to uh, uh, impact the, these regulatory capacities. Uh, and it leads to this kind of chronic inflammation, which then has um, uh, uh, in turn consequences for our physical health. Uh, uh, and so it is a, a really, um, uh, uh, pernicious negative feedback loop that is created. I assume the same thing would happen with racial bias or ethnic bias of any kind, where, or uh, where there's a one group is more powerful and is prejudiced against another group anywhere in the world. Yes, uh, absolutely. We just today, um, we had our annual emotion symposium and um, one of the speakers at this symposium uh, was an African-American psychiatrist from New York City uh, who works at Mount Sinai. Uh, and he and his family just recently moved um, uh, and uh, moved to a new place. And uh, they were getting a bunch of packages because they had just moved. And, um, uh, and some of them were ordered from Amazon. And one day he 
was uh, looking at all the packages that had been delivered to this apartment building. Uh, and a lady comes up to him who is a resident in the building. And she said, show me your identification. Um, uh, do you, are you, you're not a resident here. Um, and, you know, she was just making the assumption, of course, that he was not a resident because he's black. Uh, and, um, you know, he gave that as an example of a kind of microaggression. Uh, you know, he's a very prominent psychiatrist. Uh, and um, it's just the kind of thing that he experiences on, you know, a very frequent basis. And it's the kind of stuff that, you know, I don't think you and I experience very often. So in other words, if there's a constant source of stress, even microaggressions, as this guy is talking about, I'm thinking of someone who works for a manager, say, who subscribes to the school of thought that pressuring people with deadlines and threats is the best way to get good work. What you're saying seems to imply that actually stress makes people stupid, not better, uh, you know, more productive. Yeah, I mean, if what they're experiencing is really stress, it will uh, impair their capacity for um, uh, effective regulation. I think it will impair their ability to uh, have cooperative interpersonal interactions, kind of be a good team member, because they won't be attentive to uh, all of the cues of the team. Uh, and they're cognitive resources will be harnessed to deal with this stress. And so they'll be less creative. So they can't think as well or as nimbly or as agilely as they might otherwise. In fact, as their manager wants them to, it's a very self-defeating approach. Uh, Richie, um, I should mention that the two of us uh, recently co-authored a book on the benefits of meditation called Altered Traits, How the Mind Changes Your Mind, Brain, and Body. And we looked at a host of uh, data, really now decades of data, on the benefits of this. One of them seems to be that uh, meditation is one of many methods that will help people handle stress better. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, you know, the situation of someone who has a high stress life, whether because of their work or they're juggling kids in work or, you know, you're part of a, a, a group that is constantly experiencing bias or you've got a terrible boss, whatever it may be. What are ways that people in these dire situations can help themselves deal with it better? Yeah, well, um, there is a, uh, a growing corpus of evidence that suggests that simple forms of meditation, and I should say that research indicates that it actually doesn't take much to begin to change, um, that these simple forms of practice can really make a difference, um, particularly if they are um, implemented on a a regular basis. Uh, uh, and so uh, uh, one of the things that we are excited about in our own work is this framework for understanding what we think of as the plasticity of well-being. 
uh, that holds that there are four pillars of well-being. And, and this framework is deeply informed by both modern science, but also the meditation traditions. And we know that each of these pillars of well-being, which I'll name in just a moment, can be um, cultivated through training. So the first pillar we call awareness, which is where mindfulness would be, and it includes our capacity to regulate our attention, uh, to focus something. Well, uh, right there, if I could, before you were talking about how stress fixates attention. So this implies a kind of stress-free state where we're much more in control of where our attention can go. Is that right? Yes, and one of the kinds of meditation that uh, has been studied, uh, one that I know you know well, is the kind that um, uh, can train a person to have a broad focus of attention. So um, uh, not just really narrow, but um, to open up the attention, to be um, more panoramically aware, if you will, because we know that stress, that fear really narrows the aperture of attention of awareness. And there are certain forms of meditation that really open it up so that we can be, for example, we can be talking to a person, we can be understanding the content of what they're saying, but we can also be noticing their facial expressions. We can be attentive to their tone of voice. Uh, we can, uh, um, taking their posture, uh, all of which are important channels of communication. Uh, and in order to pay attention to all of those, we really have to open up this aperture uh, of awareness uh, so that we can uh, have a better um, likelihood of, of noticing all of these things. So that's the first pillar is awareness. Um, and awareness, I should say, also includes one other feature, which is super important and worth calling out. And that is a something that scientists call meta-awareness. What is meta-awareness? It's knowing what our minds are actually doing. And to some viewers, that may sound a little strange. Don't we always know what our minds are doing? But one of the examples that I often give is, uh, and it, it's really helps because it's an example of not knowing what our mind is doing. And that is, I think many of us, certainly I have had the experience of reading a book where you might be reading each word on a page and you might go from one page to the next. And after a few minutes, you realize that you have no idea what you've just read. Your mind is somewhere else. You're lost. But the moment you recognize that, that's a moment of meta-awareness. And it turns out, research shows that that can actually be trained. And that is a pivotal competence, we believe, for any kind of personal transformation. Because if you're not aware of what your mind is doing, then it's, it's very difficult to actually train the mind. Uh, and so uh, this is really an important capacity. Uh, we all have it, but we have it to different degrees. And the good news is that we can improve it. So the second pillar is connection. And connection is about qualities that are important for healthy social relationships. Some of them are so simple, like appreciation. Um, you know, one of the things that we often do, um, actually, we almost always do before an important meeting in our center, is we do a little 
practice. And it's often an appreciation practice where um, we're invited to bring to mind people we work with and just um, in our own minds, recognize something beneficial that they've recently done. Uh, and, and just, it, it's kind of an elixir for the soul. It, it warms the heart uh, and it can really change the tenor of a meeting. Uh, and it could be done for 30 seconds before a meeting. So that's um, uh, connection. The third pillar of well-being we call insight. And insight is about uh, a kind of curiosity-driven self-knowledge and really knowledge of the self. So all of us have a narrative that we carry around about ourselves. And this is what the human mind does. And we know that on one extreme end of a continuum, there are people walking around who have a really negative narrative. They have negative self-beliefs. And the unfortunate thing is that they actually believe those beliefs. They hold those beliefs to be a true description of who they are. And of course, that we know is a prescription for depression. And what is important for well-being is not so much changing the narrative, but it's changing our relationship to the narrative so that we can really see the narrative for what it is, which is basically it's a bunch of thoughts. Uh, and, and that can give us some leverage because we can really experientially appreciate how our narrative literally shapes the way we see the world. And we can even do a little, you know, we, we often do this too, a little exercise to imagine a different narrative and imagine how we would approach a situation if we had a different narrative. Uh, and again, it's just substituting one set of thoughts for another set of thoughts. So in the final um, pillar of, uh, of well-being or flourishing, we call purpose. And purpose is about identifying our sort of sense of direction uh, in life, our true north. And here again, it's not so much about changing what we do to do something, quote, more purposeful, but rather how can we derive meaning and purpose in that which we are already doing, including from activities that many people might regard as pedestrian, sort of daily routines. Can you envision that taking out the garbage is actually connected to your sense of purpose? And, and the answer is yes, yes, you can. You, everything could be part of your sense of purpose. Well, well, here I wonder, is there, you know, when, when we talk about purpose, we tend to think of some big deal purpose. Is there an every day, is there big purpose and little purpose? Can we have multiple purposes? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one purpose may be being kind to people, being helpful to people. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and you can do that, a person at any station, sort of in the social hierarchy can do that. Um, uh, and, uh, 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 and so it's really tapping into our core values that is really important and connecting our values to the activities in which we engage. Um, you know, one of the things we did is do this kind of training uh, during COVID with different groups. And one of the groups we did it with is public school teachers, uh, a group that has really been challenged during the pandemic. And this was done during the first year of the pandemic before there was a vaccine. And when 
almost all public school teachers were required to teach online uh, and were quite stressed. And one of the things that we did is did some simple practices to help connect these teachers to their purpose in becoming teachers in the first place. Uh, and teachers reported that of all the things that we did, that was the most meaningful. Uh, and they really um, just got so much vitality from reconnecting to their sense of purpose. So, Richie, in terms of uh, that stress state we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation and this sense of well-being, it seems that we're tracking a spectrum of experience that goes from I'm really upset, I'm disturbed, I'm stressed out, to feeling at your best, really. You're talking about some kind of optimal state with well-being. You call it flourishing. Uh, I want to circle back to something that I know from your career that happened in between your early work on emotions and your work on well-being. You did a book called uh, The Emotional Life of the Brain, I think. Was that the right title? Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about uh, several dimensions that would help people understand how stressed they are, how not stressed they are. Uh, one had to do with how often you triggered. Another was how intensely you felt being upset when you were upset. And the, the third was resilience, was how quickly you recovered. Could you tell us about each of those? Yeah, so um, thank you for asking. Uh, uh, in that book, I talked about six specific um, emotional styles, uh, if you will, and um one of them, as you point out, is resilience. And resilience, we define from a scientific perspective in a, in a simple way, but one that can really be measured rigorously. And that is the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. Uh, and so a person who recovers quickly. Wait, 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 which adversity. You're measuring adversity in the body? You say it can be measured very precisely. How do you track adversity? Like I could say, well, you know, I've experienced a lot of adversity, but how do you do it in the lab? Well, so that's a great question. Uh, and what we can do in the lab is we can uh, ethically challenge a person. So, you know, when you go to a cardiologist, you often will do a, a cardiac stress test where um, you will challenge the heart. Uh, and in response to the challenge, the physician will be able to examine your cardiovascular function. And we want to do the same thing. We want to challenge the mind and the brain in order to probe for resilience. Uh, and so we can use um, safe, ethical, but challenging procedures. So one of them is one that I uh, um, mentioned very briefly earlier, uh, uh, a giving a speech um, to an audience uh, that it, where you're presumably being evaluated. Uh, for most people, that's a stressor. And how quickly you recover after that turns out to be incredibly meaningful. Um, and so two people may show the same amplitude of response, the same, the, the volume is turned up to the same level but they recover at very different rates. One person recovers immediately after the speech is over. The other person is still stressed an hour later. 
That's very different. And, and yet they both have the same volume. What, what do you see in the brain of those two types of people, the, the quick uh, recovery person and the slow recovery person? So the circuitry for regulation is very different in those two groups of people. Um, the fast recovery people who are, we consider to be resilient uh, are um, people that have an intact regulatory system. And, and of particular note here is connections between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and other um, limbic areas that are important for emotion. And that connection, both the functional connection and even the structural connection, um, which you can measure through um, modern imaging methods, uh, um, differs in people who are resilient compared to those who are not. Uh, and so this is really an important issue. And, um, uh, and, and those are the ways that I was alluding to earlier that we, we can measure that really precisely in the brain and in the body. So we can measure how long it takes for cortisol to come back to baseline. We can also measure how long it takes for the amygdala to recover from a period of activation. As I recall, at least you once told me that uh, people who recover quickly compared to those who recover very slowly have about 30 times more activity in circuitry, I think on the left side of the prefrontal cortex versus the right. Has that held up or did I get that right? <laughs> well, um, the, uh, I don't know about the 30 times. The, the, the work on laterality uh, and emotion is um, work that uh, I devoted my career to for many years uh, using uh, EEG methods to look at the, um, the activation of the left and right prefrontal areas of the brain. And one of the ways that we did that, uh, the principal way we did that is to measure this activity while a person is not given any specific task, just while they're quote resting, kind of their default, if you will. And it turns out that using all kinds of rigorous procedures, we established that this is actually quite consistent um, in people. So that if a person, if I brought a person in today in the laboratory, and then I brought them in a month from now, and I measured these parameters of prefrontal brain activity, they would be very similar. I mean, unless something, you know, major happened in the interim, but assuming that their life was essentially going on as they usually, as it usually happens, the measurement a month from now would be very similar to the measurement that we got today. So it's a very stable characteristic. And it turns out that people who have more left prefrontal activation have um, a, a more resilient profile. Now, you know, the, the magnitude of it depends on the extremity of the prefrontal activation. And so there are a lot of variables in here. So I think it's important that we not um, get stuck on a soundbite of how, you know, many times more uh, a person is resilient who is showing this pattern because people can vary in the degree to which they show this pattern. Can people go through a training to get better at this, to be, uh, you know, more quickly recover from stress? Yeah, absolutely they can. And it turns out that um, 
we've shown that simple forms of uh, mindfulness or awareness meditation uh, can improve a person's ability to recover more quickly. Uh, and so this is something that um, research shows uh, can occur. Uh, uh, and there, the data also suggests that uh, there are, that at least to some extent, this scales with practice time. So the more practice you have, the better you get at this. Are there other things that can do this? Is there a, like a quick way to, to shift, to get out of the, being all stressed out and uh, activated? There might be. Uh, and so I think there are a number of things that are really are promising. So there are certain kinds of interventions that we think of as micro-interventions. And a micro-intervention is kind of what it sounds like. It's really short. Um, uh, and uh, uh, one of the things that we know is that a person's mindset is a really important determinant of how resilient they are. People who believe that their minds are fixed and can't be changed um, and who have a profile of low resilience um, are gonna, it's gonna be very difficult to move them. But if a person who has low resilience but is induced in some way to have a more, what we say, a growth mindset, um, uh, a person who uh, is um, uh, uh, receives training uh, to, to change their beliefs about the extent to which their mind is malleable, um, that can have, and it doesn't take much, that can have a potentially really powerful effect. And research shows enduring impact of those kinds of mindset shifts. So uh, the change in mindset might be from, I'm always going to be like this to, I can, I can get better. I can recover more quickly. Is it something like that? Yeah. And often it's just the taste of an alternative way of being to, to convince a person. Yeah. Wow. It actually is possible for me to relax a little bit more. And, you know, I just did it and it doesn't take that much. Uh, uh, and so it's giving them that experiential glimpse. Is, is the same true of those other two indicators I mentioned of uh, stress reactivity, one being that you get triggered a lot and the other that when you are triggered, you feel it really intensely. Can those shift to being less triggered and feeling it less intensely? Yes, I believe they can, but I, I also um, hasten to add that there's a lot that we don't know about uh, how much it would take and what the optimal training might be. Uh, and one of the things I often say, uh, which uh, I'm more and more convinced is true, is that one size does not fit all. Uh, and uh, what works best for one person uh, may not be what's optimal for another person. And this is an area where um, modern research can play a really important role and be pragmatically very helpful. In finding what works for what kind of person. 
exactly what works best for whom and when. Uh-huh. Those are the big questions. And, and the, you know, the most honest answers to those questions are we don't know, but they are empirically tractable. That is, it's possible to get the answers. On that note, I want to thank you, Richie, for joining us. And I look forward to further findings in the field. Uh, it sounds like there's lots of questions and also some answers so far. Thanks again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.